0: Hello everyone, my name is Strangely Duisberg, and this is Porchementier. This week is chapter three. If you haven't gone back and listened to chapters one and two, I highly recommend you do that first. Porchementier, a novel by Strangely Duisberg. Chapter three. Many years ago, in the heyday of the vaudeville circuits of the Northern Americas, there existed a certain breed of magicians apart from their better-known kin. No mere prestidigitators, illusionists, or psychic charlatans. These were the pocketsmen. Instead of causing objects to vanish, the pocketsmen would make them appear, upon request, anything. It is difficult to express the profundity of the effect a skilled pochemancier could have on an audience of willing participants. All the more so because the performances were, on the whole, deceptively simple. The act saw the audience requesting various small items which the magician would then produce, as if by magic, sometimes with various palmed flourishes, sometimes not. A typical performance would begin with a simple item, such as a pocket handkerchief or tobacco pouch, but quickly escalate to absurd specificity. The best Pocketsmen could produce hundreds if not thousands of different objects which had been secreted about their person in various pouches, sleeves, and yes, pockets. And they could do this on cue, as if by magic. We have all experienced the joy of asking a nearby person if they could spare a dollar, a light, a pen. Now picture such usefulness increased exponentially. Eleanor was one such as this among the last of her kind, to walk the world. When one has such a talent, and a demeanor of convivial relations with the folk around oneself, it often leads to many chance encounters. Take, for instance, Eleanor's day up to the point of encountering Martin. Living in a city in the early misty hours of an October morning, it pulls into the station and half a dozen tired, sleepy people get off. One of these is Eleanor, Small suitcase in hand, she walks out of the bus station and finds herself on the early morning sidewalk. Tilting her head back, she inhales deeply of the air of this new place. So many possibilities and ideas. The sense of a thousand lives. It also smells like rain, and there is a peculiar sharpness in the wind that Eleanor is unfamiliar with, though something in her chest tells her it means a storm. As she is deciding what to do next, someone approaches. Eleanor's head stays tilted up toward the gray sky, but her hand goes slowly into her pocket and comes out holding a small, oblong silver box. The stranger draws up alongside. Do you have a light, Mish? My matches are all wet. Quick as lightning, Eleanor has snapped her fingers, sending the lid flying off the box and striking the flint within. The antique lighter bursts into flame and the stranger lights a cigarette, face glowing as much with appreciation as the flame she holds. The lighter disappears into a pocket almost before the first pull is taken. Thanks. The stranger turns to go, but Eleanor's hand whips out and catches around their wrist. She turns a warm smile to the smoker. I'm sorry. A a moment of your time? The stranger nods, somewhat off balance. I'm looking for a place to sit and be, perhaps a cafe? Just somewhere I can drink a coffee and read a book and not have to walk about. The stranger nods again, smiling this time. This is a request easily satisfied and a fair trade for the gift of fire. A location, not far, is described and in less than a minute they have parted and Eleanor is off and away, seeking the shattered anchor. Fire, traded for knowledge. Shadow Markets. Eleanor turns several corners, the directions well-memorized and repeating like a litany in her head. Left on Tudor, right on Grand, left on Market, Two blocks, and then it's on the corner of railroad. Left on Tudor, as she moves down the street, a woman draws up alongside her. Hello. Don't mean to trouble you. It's just that I'm in a bit of a pickle. See, I've forgotten to charge my phone, and I've got a meeting someplace around here, but I can't quite remember the address. Have you got a robot phone I could use to look it up? Eleanor chuckles. Robot phone? That's charming. But I'm sorry, I don't own a mobile. I doubt I can help you. I'm not from here. What were you looking for? It's called the shattered ankle or something like that. Do you mean the shattered anchor? The woman nods. Eleanor takes the woman's hand and starts walking, the surprised woman hurrying to keep pace alongside. With an elaborate gesture, Eleanor proclaims, You're in luck. That's where I'm headed. It's just up here. The woman is so thankful that she insists on buying Eleanor coffee and, upon finding she's just arrived off a night bus, a sandwich. They speak of nothing in particular for a few minutes. Comfortable strangers. When her meeting arrives, the woman scribbles her number on a piece of paper, which instantly disappears somewhere in Eleanor's coat. Give me a call if you need anything. Anything at all. You're so lovely. I can't believe I met someone so nice. If you need a place to stay, just let me know. Eleanor thanks the woman and retires to a back table. Close to hand, as if poised, her coat hangs upon a peg, which bends perceptibly under the weight. From an inside pocket, Eleanor withdraws a battered copy of Cannery Row and opens to her marked page, which is near the end. The book, coffee, and sandwich are soon finished. Eleanor buys another coffee and nurses this one, pondering the street outside, now full of swirling wind and lashing rain. A man approaches the table and leans down, awkward, Hello. Uh, I'm so sorry to bother you. It's my daughter. You, you see, she's just hat. A tampon appears in Eleanor's hand before the man can even finish his request. He blushes and thanks her as though she has just released him from a decades-long sojourn in a lightless cave. He is almost bowing as he heads back toward the toilets at the rear of the cafe. Eleanor never even looks up, eyes still fixed upon the rain, watching the little rivulets of water collecting and running down the street. She remains in the cafe for the better part of three hours, staring out the window, on occasion writing a bit in a small leather-bound journal. Some pedestrians seem to kindle a small degree of interest, but for the most part, her demeanor is one of quiet contemplation. By the time she collects herself to leave, no less than three other patrons have approached her with simple requests. A pen, the time, and again, a light. All are granted with a detached and cheerful manner and all leave feeling, in some minuscule way, enriched by the experience. Her second cup finished, and deciding against a third, she gathers her things to go. Back on the sidewalk, now slick with rain, Eleanor makes a mental note of the cross streets near the cafe, and continues out into the city. A short time before noon, she finds a museum, and spends several hours walking the crowded halls, seeking out the secret, quiet corners deemed too boring by the general populace a lesser painting by a third-string master, a collection of pressed grasses, glass cases full of carefully labeled rocks. Fascinating in a sort of academic way, but lacking the dramatic pull of some ancient beast rendered in skeletal form. All these and more are examined with care and remembered for further thought as she travels on in a meandering journey that never quite stops. A master of a kind of Bouteau walk, so slow as to be imperceptible, Eleanor can walk through a gallery and see everything without fully coming to rest. Only once in her travels does she come to a complete stop, this in front of a case housing the taxidermied remains of nearly a hundred songbirds. Each is named by a neat label and poised as if in life upon a fastable tree branch. One of the tiny creatures has come loose from its perch and lies in a crumpled heap at the bottom of the case. Intrigued, Eleanor moves closer to the cage searching for the fallen specimen's rightful place and finds it missing. According to the placard, 97 birds are represented in the case, but there are clearly 98. Eleanor has counted. 97 are poised, mounted, and labeled, and one is not. Eleanor has counted. What then is she to make of this extra bird? A curatorial mistake? Or perhaps something darker? Perhaps... Beyond all reasonable possibility, a small songbird made its way into the museum and wound up trapped inside the case. What must it have thought as it lay, slowly dying of thirst, beneath the formalined corpses of its kin? A short while after exiting the museum, she turns a corner and passes a young woman pulling a small trolley. Unlike Eleanor's aimless wanderings, Hers is a purposeful, if sodden walk, as she makes her way to and from parts unknown. Eleanor instantly recognizes a fellow practitioner of prestidigitation arts, and she exchanges a polite nod as they draw closer together, wondering if she too has been noticed. In addition to a pair of small waterproof trunks, Eleanor can see the unmistakable shape of a Harbinstable, a kind of folding stand favored by magicians. She has a similar one tucked into a large pocket near her left hip, though hers is much smaller. Eleanor wonders if this woman conjures with the cups and the balls. An old trick, to be sure, but one of Eleanor's personal favorites, as the ending is always different depending upon the magician. A flash of insight pushes her to secretly produce a small card with her contact information, the number of a phone answering service in a faraway city, and put pocket it into the other woman's smart little jacket. If nothing else, she hopes this chance encounter could lead to meeting a colleague, perhaps one who could provide her with advice on where to acquire some much needed items. She is beginning to run out of playing cards. Just the week before, she had to make do with a pair of cards to produce the requested individual card. The verbal and mental gymnastics required to get away with this are enjoyable to her, but sometimes the less showy version is the better. And perhaps a tailor? One of her pockets needs machine mending. For a brief instant, she allows herself to hope that the woman might be a pochemancier, but pushes the thought away. A magician, surely, but the coat was too small. Or was it? She glances over her shoulder, but the woman has gone. All she sees is the corner of a trunk as it whisks away around the corner, unaware that she has just missed a backward look in her own direction. Eleanor has only ever met one other pochemancier, a brash young man very much in love with his own potential. As is often the case with traveling folk, the two enjoyed a sort of time-compressed affair that went from acquaintance to close friendship in the course of a single afternoon. By dusk, they were holding hands atop a Ferris wheel beside a river, and by moonrise, they were making love upon their rumpled coats in a small copse of trees in a city park. As the sun rose, they kissed tenderly and went their separate ways, vowing to one day find each other. In retrospect, Eleanor found him far more aggravating than charming, His opinions on the practice and purpose of magic struck her as just plain wrong. He pontificated at one point that men, capable of cold logic and detachment, would always make better pockets men than any woman. This might have angered her, but she was already halfway into a pilfered bottle of wine on an empty stomach, and perhaps a bit giddy with the company of a kindred soul. Instead, Eleanor found herself responding with a flirtatious, "'Well,' I will always have at least one pocket you'll never have. The horrendous pun caused her to turn bright red and fall over giggling as soon as she said it, and then they were kissing. Later, she would reflect that the statement, though meant to be coquettish, was actually quite true, and probably a failing that will haunt him for the rest of his career. For Eleanor's stuff that folds, one's gender has nothing to do with it. Far more important in her profession is temperament, The adoption of a single-minded commitment. It is lonely, annoying, and at times, heartbreaking. Standing close to a newly met couple, idly listening to their awkward attempts to impress one another, and then being asked if she has a pen and paper so they can exchange phone numbers comes to mind. But this is the life she has chosen, and for the most part, she is happy with it. Need I tell you that in the time between leaving the Shattered Anchor And passing the prestidigitatress on the street, Eleanor is accosted by no less than seven people asking to borrow or use small items. I hardly think it's necessary. You may be wondering how Eleanor manages to replenish this seemingly endless supply of items, so freely given. To be frank, I do as well. I'm afraid that it will have to remain a mystery, at least for the time being. Another turn, and she stops. A small trickle of water has begun to worm its way down the back of her collar and between her shoulder blades, and her shoes squelch with every step. A dead-eyed dog walker passes her on the opposite side of the street, accompanied by three bedraggled dogs making their way through the horrendous weather. And so it is that she finds herself standing outside of a particular bookshop, hesitating, only the briefest of moments, before entering. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to chapter three of Pochmancier. If you'd like to learn more about me and the kinds of performance art and music that I play, you can head over to www.strangelyandfriends.com or to go directly to the podcast, you can just type in pochemancier.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Strangely, And I think if you go to facebook.com slash strangely... I think that's it. Facebook.com slash strangely will get you right to me on Facebook. I am a touring musician and performance artist. So if you'd like to have me show up in your town and play some accordion and do some of my circus tricks and maybe read a bit to you from one of my writing projects, uh, get in touch. I'd always love to hear from you about this story or whatever you want to talk to me about, really. I... uh, I like to view art as sort of a dialogue between myself and the people who are experiencing it. That's one of the reasons that I decided to just release my novel as a free audiobook podcast and not put it up just as a book to read, because for me, performing the things I create is almost as important and fun as uh, sharing them. So I'm kind of excited to hear what you all are thinking of this. Sorry about last week not appearing correctly. I'm still learning how to format podcasts and upload them and so on. So hopefully from here on out, everything should be up every Tuesday like clockwork. Anyway, I hope you all have a great week and I'll see you all next time for chapter four of Curio Shops and Curio Files.